0: new season out on Spotify soon.
1: April 27th, 2011. Tom Dilo, a program manager at WTXT in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, stepped out of the radio station and looked up into the sky. The clouds above were low, dark, wind whipped around him. Rain stung his face. It was a quarter past five in the afternoon, and the entire state was on high alert.
2: Then at 5.17 p.m., the tornado siren began to wail. Tom glanced over the parking lot. He couldn't believe what he saw. An enormous, twisting cloud of debris was crossing in front of the station.
1: Tom turned back to his colleagues who had gathered to watch the storm and encouraged everyone to get back inside. Suddenly, there was a bright flash and a loud crack of electricity not far from the building. The radio station went dark.
2: A few miles northeast, Brad Lawrence stood in his front yard with his video camera. He saw shingles and two-by-fours spinning in the high-velocity wind only a few hundred yards from his house. He started recording.
1: Brad suddenly felt a sharp drop in the air pressure. He pivoted and slammed the front door closed behind him. He set his camera on a windowsill, still recording, and grabbed the cushions off his living room sofa.
2: He hurled the sofa cushions down the basement stairs and ran down after them piling them around and on top of himself. Upstairs, the roar was deafening. Then the front windows exploded into the house.
1: The tornado had arrived. It was a mile and a half wide.
2: Before this storm was over, there would be 361 more of them.
1: Welcome to Natural Disasters, a ParCast Original. I'm your host, Kate.
2: And I'm Bill. Every Monday, we'll explore moments in history when the natural world turned deadly. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Natural Disasters for free on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Natural Disasters in the search bar.
1: At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network.
2: And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help.
1: Nobody knows for certain when or where tornadoes will strike. Over the years, increasingly complex techniques have been developed to study the storms that create tornadoes. But the twisters themselves are still one of nature's most destructive mysteries.
2: Meteorologists have an understanding of the weather mechanics that are most likely to produce tornadoes. But even if the conditions are perfect, nobody knows where or when a tornado might emerge or how powerful it will be.
1: High above North America, a ribbon of air currents constantly flows from west to east. It brings cold air from the Arctic across the entire continent. This wind highway is called the jet stream.
2: During the week of April 25th, 2011, The jet stream was blowing over 100 miles an hour, 40,000 feet up in the air. As it skimmed over the Rocky Mountains, it collected the dry air around the peaks and brought it east.
1: That same week, 1,000 miles to the south, balmy, warm ocean air was rolling up off the Gulf of Mexico and moving north. This humid air would settle over the southern United States
2: for several days. These two weather fronts were about to collide and explode into a series of massive storms. They would wreak havoc over nearly a third of the country and spawn over 350 tornadoes in 72 hours. It would become known as the 2011 super outbreak.
1: Although tornadoes have been spotted on every continent except Antarctica, The specific types of weather and wind needed to create tornadoes aren't common in every climate.
2: One of the few places where these conditions are common is the Great Plains region of North America. This area experiences over a thousand tornadoes a year, more than anywhere else on the planet. Because of this, a large swath of the Midwestern United States is known as Tornado Alley.
1: For a tornado to form, fast-moving cold air needs to meet warm, humid air. The cold air shoves the warm air down and rolls over it, forming a horizontal twist of wind, like an invisible tube of air spinning sideways.
2: Then, because warm air rises, this spinning tube of air is pushed vertically in a process known as an updraft. This is the origin of a thunderstorm. If the wind increases in strength, it will form a giant rotating cloud bank called a supercell.
1: The spinning tube of air acts as an insulator for the warm air rising up the middle. The cold air drops down along the sides, pressuring warm air up the center. As more air is moved through the system, the storm grows, producing powerful wind and hail.
2: Hail occurs as the supercell lifts water vapor high in the atmosphere, often miles above the ground. When the vapor turns to rain, it freezes as it falls through the frigid air. Large clumps of hail mean the water had a long time to collect and freeze on the way down. The size of hail is a good indicator of how high the storm clouds have grown.
1: During the super outbreak, the clouds were over six miles high people found chunks of hail the size of a fist. Hail that large can punch holes through windshields and cause severe injuries to anybody caught outside.
2: Sometimes a whirling section of the supercell close to the ground spins off into a small, intense vortex. This vortex is a tornado, and they occur in about 30% of supercell storms. They can be small and last for seconds, like dust devils in the desert.
1: Or they can be what Tom and Brad saw in Tuscaloosa, enormous spinning towers of debris with wind speeds of over 200 miles an hour. No matter how big it is, if a tornado touches the ground, it can suck up and spin objects in its path.
2: Tornadoes can hurl cars like toys, crush 10-story grain silos as if they were soda cans, and etch grooves into the earth that are a quarter mile wide. Entire neighborhoods can disappear into their funnels as though they had never existed.
1: Twisters leave shocking and sometimes surreal scenes of havoc in their wake. There have been sightings of license plates and pencils driven into tree trunks and cows lifted from one field and deposited in another a half mile away, found completely unharmed.
2: Most tornado fatalities are caused by flying debris. Oklahoma State Medical Examiner Eric Pfeiffer had only been on the job one day when a deadly tornado hit the town of El Reno in 2013. He said, Until you see firsthand what a tornado can do to the human body, you don't realize how extremely violent they are. The injuries are similar to a high speed motor vehicle accident, but they're much more numerous. Things like trees, nails, glass, and steel are torn loose and can act as a cutting implement. Imagine a piece of sheet metal traveling at 290 miles per hour. It becomes a blender.
1: For most of recorded history, tornadoes were simply measured by the number of people they killed or homes they destroyed. The spectrum of tornado damage has only been scientifically measured for the last 50
2: years. In 1971, Dr. Ted Fujita, a researcher based at the University of Chicago, proposed a new system of measuring tornadoes that combined wind speed and level of damage. His initial system was a scale from zero to five, with zero being the least destructive and five being catastrophic.
1: Dr. Fujita had studied this catastrophic level of devastation his whole life, starting in 1945, with a terrible event that occurred not far from his university in Japan. Fujita personally witnessed the aftermath of the nuclear bombing of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. He found that the severity of damage from a tornado was similar to nuclear blasts.
2: A few years after its creation, the Fujita scale would be put to the test. In 1974, a surge of tornadoes hit 13 states over two days. Fujita and his team examined the damage and categorized every tornado that touched down. With the new data, the Fujita scale became the standard of measurements for tornadoes across the world.
1: The swath of tornadoes that Fujita studied in 1974 was the most destructive ever measured. That is, until 2011.
2: Today, an enhanced version of Fujita scale is the bedrock of tornado studies. With over 40 years of data collected by meteorologists, the six levels on the scale have become much more detailed.
1: The modern scale is from EF0 to EF5. An EF0 tornado might only touch the ground for a few seconds and cause very little damage. An EF-3 twister will drive fence posts through trees at 165 miles an hour. And an EF-5 will wipe the Earth clean with winds peaking near 300 miles per hour.
2: Only 59 tornadoes had been categorized as five since 1950. Between 1974, when Fujita developed the scale, and 2011, there had been 19 EF-5s recorded.
1: There would be four of them during the 2011 outbreak, and tens of thousands of people would be caught right in their path. Anyone living in Tornado Alley would only have as much warning as the National Weather Service could give them.
2: The official goal of the NWS is to provide at least 15 minutes warning of impending tornadoes. During the outbreak, they would successfully average 24 minutes warning This is how lives are saved, as Weather Service meteorologist Wes Browning explained after a powerful tornado in Missouri. We saw many people uh, digging through their possessions. What uh, we saw though, invariably, was a lack of, as has been said before, life-threatening injuries. Not only because we had a 34-minute lead time from the National Weather Service, but because our media partners carried that warning immediately to the public, and thirdly, that the public did what we have told them to do. The National Weather Service maintains a network of weather stations throughout the country, but the Storm Prediction Center is based in an unassuming office park in Norman, Oklahoma.
1: The center is located in a squat, round brick building surrounded by parking lots and prairie grasses. A little plaque planted in front identifies this as the most important hub for storm tracking in the United States.
2: Within the walls of the SPC, there is enough meteorological technology and personnel to maintain a comprehensive 24-hour watch of every weather front from Puget Sound to Key West.
1: On April 25th, the SPC was monitoring the collision of the cool jet stream with the warm low pressure front coming up from the Gulf. It was gathering energy.
2: This will be more into the mid-Atlantic, maybe parts of the Carolinas with a slight risk, more isolated damaging winds and large hail and then another area down along the front that's gonna kind of stall in the northern Gulf states.
1: It hit southern Illinois, southern Indiana, northern and western Kentucky and Ohio pretty hard with widespread gusts of 60 to 80 miles an hour and some locally higher than that.
2: It seemed as if where we are accustomed to a big tornado striking and then playing itself out in most occasions, that many of these big supercells got stronger and stronger. The SPC issued their first tornado watch for the outbreak at 11 a.m. Central Standard Time. It read, urgent, immediate broadcast requested. The NWS Storm Prediction Center has issued a tornado watch for portions of western Arkansas, southeast Oklahoma, Northeast Texas.
1: It was the 201st severe weather watch issued that year. The SPC would issue over 50 more in the next two days for counties all the way to the Atlantic coast.
2: Everywhere from Texas all the way through the Ohio Valley, and we actually have three three watches in place currently, uh, two severe and one tornado watch. Just after 5 p.m., the first tornado sightings came in. Several EF-0 and EF-1s hit rural parts of Tennessee and Arkansas, tearing up utility poles, snapping off pine trees, and wrecking small sheds and barns. No injuries had been reported yet.
1: Then, disaster struck the small town of Valonia, Arkansas.
2: When we return, we'll hear about the first fatal tornado of the 2011 super outbreak.
0: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details.
1: Now, back to the story.
0: The
2: first tornadoes of the 2011 super outbreak were sighted in western Arkansas on Monday, April 25th. They were short-lived and not very powerful, measuring as EF0 and EF1s on the Fujita scale. Every state in the South was on alert, and most were under tornado watches. David
1: and Catherine Talley of Greenbrier, Arkansas, were visiting family in the town of Valonia that week. They were staying in a mobile home that was part of a subdivision called Black Oak Ranch.
2: Lisa Watson was also a resident at Black Oak, When the first local tornado warning came in, she hurried her three children into the car and headed out of town. As she sped away from the subdivision, she saw a tornado off to her left.
1: Another Valonia resident, Richard Bass, was at home with his kids when the tornado appeared.
0: A friend of mine warned me that the tornado was on top of us, and uh,
2: before I could shoot a text back saying, no, it's not. I felt the barometric pressure drop. Um, I felt the rumbling and I grabbed my three kids and my three dogs and went to the closet right back there. David and Catherine Talley saw the twister too. David made a call to his mother as they fled from their mobile home to a heavy steel shipping container they used as storage. They felt it would be safer than the lightly constructed mobile home.
1: The tornado barreled down on Valonia. It tore the roof off the grocery store. It tossed several cars across the main road. It reduced mobile homes to nothing but heaps of wood and insulation, with residents' possessions scattered everywhere.
2: Tarina Atkins and her family huddled in their laundry room. They suddenly heard a loud sucking noise and realized the water was being pulled out of the pipes and sink drains. We could feel our ears popping, she said.
1: Another Valonia resident, Sally Lanham, felt the same thing. It went right through our front yard. He you, you could see the rotation, the cloud,
2: and we could see debris flying. Um, but it missed, our, missed the house. It took the pool shed, knocked down huge trees, loud wind, our
1: ears popped. And then just in seconds, it was over. Rick Satterwhite hid in a storm cellar with his wife and in-laws, and felt the suction inside.
0: I went ahead and shut the door, and, and you know we could we could tell you know that it was uh, uh, it was doing pretty bad outside because it was sucking all the air out of the, out of the storm cellar. I had a twenty by twenty carport, uh, a pole carport, uh, just away from the house, and it it was blow
2: it was blown away. But it it's out in the field to the east of the house. As David and Catherine Tally took cover in the shipping container. David quickly finished his conversation with his mother. He told her that he loved her before he hung up.
1: The Valonia tornado was categorized as a strong EF2, and it left a slice through the town that was three miles wide. Ten people were dead, including David and Catherine Talley. The twister had picked up the container and hurled it 150 feet into a nearby pond.
2: The 2011 super outbreak had claimed its first victims. The forecast predicted at least another 48 hours of dangerous weather. People turned to television and radio news for hourly updates. The storm warning stacked up quickly.
1: As night fell over the devastation in Vilonia another EF-2 tornado hit the Air Force base in Little Rock, wrecking several C-130 aircraft and damaging over 100 barracks. More tornadoes were seen in Arkansas, Texas, and Louisiana.
2: Emergency services began digging through rubble and pulling people out of the remains of their homes. Damage reports and further storm sightings poured in from law enforcement and emergency personnel.
1: There were not enough fire trucks or ambulances for every town that had suffered damage. In some counties, the fire stations themselves had been wrecked.
2: But that storm cell had passed, giving a brief respite to those who had been through the worst. There was time to count the dead and assess the damage before the next round of storms arrived.
0: During the early morning hours, everything calmed down uh, quite a bit, and the, the uh, system, that system has moved out of the state. And, of course, it, it left behind uh, lots, of, uh, lots of destruction.
2: The pattern's not changing, and it looks like we're going to see another round of uh, severe thunderstorms uh, with very heavy rainfall from eastern port, northeastern portions of Texas up to Arkansas and to up the lower Ohio Valley. We'll see another uh, round of severe storms with, again, potential for isolated tornadoes across much of central southern Arkansas, a little bit of lower threat across the north. Factors are coming together where we will have the potential for some strong tornadoes and maybe even even one or one long-lived, very dangerous tornado, say an EF3 or above.
1: The next morning, the Storm Prediction Center was on high alert. It was April 26th and the previous day's tornadoes were just the beginning of the nightmare. They monitored the hungry storm front as it plowed on towards Alabama and the jurisdiction of NWS Birmingham.
2: Jim Stefkovic was the head of the National Weather Service Station in Birmingham, Alabama. His tenure at NWS Birmingham had begun in the hurricane season of 2005, the year Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans.
1: Stefkovich was no stranger to bad weather. He had been with the Weather Service for 30 years and even held a position at the Maryland headquarters before he graduated from college. Since then, he'd been stationed all over the country.
2: He was watching the oncoming supercells with an impending sense of dread. His team at NWS Birmingham would need all hands on deck for the next several days as the storm cell exploded in size, even though many of their own homes and families were right in the storm's predicted path.
1: Kevin Laws was one of the lead meteorologists on Stefkovich's team. He knew they may be looking at a worst-case scenario, where a storm is so strong, so destructive, that no amount of effort can save you. He was also concerned about people ignoring the warnings the NWS was putting out. During the summer months, tornado warnings were common, and they were often inaccurate. The previous year, the warnings were wrong about 80% of the time.
2: In fact, during the Valonia tornado, One resident named Pat Fulmer nearly came out from safety because she thought the warnings were false alarms. There had been two previous warnings that didn't result in tornado touchdowns. She was feeling almost safe in the assurance that the warning sirens were overly sensitive.
1: This revealed a fundamental issue with tornado predictions. They are never guarantees. Tornado warnings come out often for Midwestern and Southern states, and they are a part of daily life for the residents of Tornado Alley.
0: A couple of people said they weren't paying great attention last night.
1: We were thinking we'd go to more, but we weren't worried at that point.
2: Even with the assistance of the SPC in Oklahoma, all that Kevin Laws and Jim Stefkovich could do was watch the data every minute, create their reports, and issue warnings they couldn't force
1: people to heed them. Complacency could be as dangerous as the storms. The Birmingham office had been very cognizant of their false warning rate and always attempted to avoid the accusation of crying wolf. But if the weather service didn't issue a warning, even a weak tornado could still strike.
2: The decision weighed heavy on Stefkovich, Laws, and their team. Should they trigger the number of warnings that their data said were necessary and risk the tornado sirens becoming background noise or hold off and leave people completely vulnerable if a tornado did land? Laws wrote about the dilemma afterwards, addressing the concerns he'd heard about the warning systems prior to the storm. In short, they were being urged to improve the accuracy of their detections.
1: Two of the television partners most concerned about accurate warnings for the approaching storm were lead meteorologist James Spann and weatherman Jason Simpson of ABC 3340, the affiliate that covered Birmingham and Tuscaloosa.
2: Jason had worked for James Spann for seven years, having first met him after a presentation during Jason's senior year of high school. Jason had always loved meteorology, even as a teenager, his passion had impressed Span, and he had offered Jason an internship on the spot. Six years later, he hired Jason to be part of his weather team.
1: James Span was a legendary weatherman. Known across Alabama for his soothing baritone and genuine personality, Span had reached a status of celebrity usually reserved for movie stars. He had reached the friend limit on Facebook, had a massive Twitter following, and ran a hugely successful weekly online talk show. He even had his own bobblehead doll.
2: So if James Spann was worried, people knew to pay attention. He and Jason had been watching the forecasts out of the SPC in Oklahoma for days. They knew it was going to be bad. They readied themselves for long days on the air.
1: TV meteorologists like Span could not issue warnings, only the Weather Service could. But it was their responsibility to broadcast them as quickly as possible. As the tornado in Valonia had shown, every minute of advance warning could save lives.
2: But even if a tornado touched down and was reported, there was no way to know how powerful and destructive it would be. A tornado could only be categorized after it had occurred.
1: Sending out investigators immediately was also one of the responsibilities of the Weather Service. NWS personnel would arrive in towns that had been decimated only hours previously and would have to calmly and factually report the terrible damage, injuries, and deaths.
2: Only then would a Fujita category be applied. As the field reports came in during the week of the super outbreak, the meteorologists realized that the tornadoes were even stronger than they had predicted.
1: Most of the initial tornadoes were rated EF1 or EF2, but the wind and damage reports worsened from there. Investigators were seeing levels of destruction caused by EF3 and EF4 twisters, and the storm was still growing more intense
2: we'll hear about the incredible destructive power of the outbreak's first ef5 tornado right after this
1: now back to the story
2: during the 2011 super outbreak the severity frequency and power of the tornadoes set new records across the board the most tornadoes in a single day in a single month, and the highest property and crop damage in history.
1: But how could a single storm challenge or break so many records that had been set over the course of decades? Some scientists immediately suspected climate change was to blame. The huge open plains of North America gathered sunlight and atmospheric heat exceptionally well. Could global warming be the culprit?
2: The answer wasn't a simple one. Climate change due to human activity is called anthropogenic.
1: Two studies conducted by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA, found that it was very difficult to find hard evidence that anthropogenic climate change impacted the frequency of tornadoes over the past 30 years.
2: By 2011, science had decades of data that allowed meteorologists to create the enhanced Fujita scale. But historical tornadoes were largely known by stories and anecdotal evidence before the Fujita scale was developed.
1: This meant it was impossible to establish long-term trends. Current hard data was analyzed alongside tornado records from before 1970. Those records were relatively sparse and almost entirely subjective. After all, the minute-by-minute wind speeds measured at a modern airport couldn't be compared to a grandmother's memory of the howl of a twister in 1935.
2: The conclusion of NOAA was that there was no way to identify a direct cause for the severity of the 2011 outbreak.
1: But that didn't matter to the people who were living through the storms during that week in April 2011. All they knew was that the sky had opened up above them over and over to drop huge towers of destruction wrapped in hail and rain.
2: The morning of April 26th dawned without sunshine. Gray clouds hovered over the south and promised another day of dangerous weather. The meteorologist knew more tornadoes were coming, but tornadoes weren't the only killer.
1: With the immense amount of rain that accompanied the super outbreak storm, rivers all across the south began to burst their levees.
0: Every single inch of my county is slowly going underwater. We need sandbaggers, we need food, we need water. We need anything we can get in here, anything anybody can help us. We're open to it. The river backs up into the lakes and creeks around here. All this water is backing up into this area.
2: There were several fatalities when people tried to drive across flooded roads and were swept away. Others were caught in flash floods that washed across the region.
1: While tornadoes came and went leaving trails of destruction behind. The rains continued unabated and the flood damage only worsened. The waters rose and inundated large parts of states that were already suffering.
2: We have flood watches and flash flood watches and warnings in effect all the way from northeast Texas all the way up into Indiana and down to central Tennessee and even the northern portions of Alabama and Mississippi. We're going to see again another round of very heavy rains across the area or continuing heavy rains across the area. And there's going to be a lot of flooding issues you're going to hear coming out of the central U.S. over the course of the next two to three days.
0: It has been rising four inches every 16 minutes. It's supposed to crest in the morning at uh, 21 feet.
2: As the day wore on, the storm spread itself farther north, reaching into Wisconsin and Michigan. The low pressure systems were widening to form a nearly unbroken line of storms across the entire country, from Texas to the Great Lakes.
1: Hail the size of golf balls was reported at the same time in New York, Michigan, Texas, and Indiana. At 1.45 p.m. on the 26th, the National Weather Service started upgrading many of their tornado watches to PDS, which meant particularly dangerous situation.
2: Back at NWS Birmingham, Jim Stefkovich braced himself as he analyzed the data coming in from the West. He would later say in a quote to Alabama.com, I've worked in seven states and been through many tornado events. I literally was sick to my stomach on April 26th, knowing what was coming.
1: As people went to bed on the night of the 26th, many of them still had their emergency radios at their bedside. They tried to fall asleep in between bouts of lightning, thunder, and hail.
2: There hadn't been reported fatalities yet from the tornadoes that touched down that day, And many people believed they had already been through the worst. They were wrong. The next day, April 27th, would be the deadliest day for tornadoes in 75 years.
1: So far, the 2011 super outbreak had produced over 100 tornadoes across six states. Emergency crews worked overnight to dig people out of rubble and provide shelter and supplies to those whose homes had been destroyed.
2: At 3.19 a.m. on April 27th, Jim Stefkovich and his team at the National Weather Service in Birmingham released a hazardous weather outlook for the day. It was a county-by-county prediction for the approaching onslaught of turbulent weather.
1: The NWS forecast was urgent and did not mince words. It said... Now is the time to review your severe weather action plan and be prepared to take quick action. The report concluded with a single foreboding sentence. Activation of storm spotters and emergency management will be needed today and tonight.
2: Even with radar and satellite reports, the only way to be certain the tornado had actually touched down was to have a human being see it with their own eyes and report accurately. Meteorologists call this ground truth.
1: Accurate ground truth reporting for the super outbreak required a massive fleet of volunteer storm spotters and chasers. Spotters are based in towns across the country who stay in their area to report. Storm chasers pick up and track the storms, following them for miles and often across entire states.
2: In Tornado Alley, storm chasers are a very common sight. While traffic would jam up on the highways leading away from a tornado, chasers would be heading the opposite direction into the path of the twister. They often drive large SUVs with a pin cushion of antennas and weather measurement equipment strapped onto their vehicles. The interiors can resemble a spaceship with huge beeping arrays of lights and screens.
1: Storm chasers try to get alongside the storms to place measurement equipment and cameras in time to capture any tornado that was formed. They collect data on variable wind speed, barometric pressure, and rain, hail, and temperature measurements. Their photos and videos also serve as evidence for weather service investigators.
2: Sometimes storm chasers would arrive too late or be too far away to get to the storm in time. In many instances, the storm would outrun them, moving across the ground faster than their speeding vehicles could keep up.
1: But what every storm chaser wanted to avoid was being in the right place at the wrong time. A tornado could change direction without warning and come right for them.
2: While most storm chasers were volunteers who relied on their personal savings to keep up their research activities, They were not all amateurs. Some were professional scientists sponsored by universities and NOAA grants.
1: It was a dangerous but necessary role. By the morning of the 27th, storm chasers from across the country had descended on Alabama and Mississippi to join the local spotters. All of them were ready to record and report.
2: By 7 a.m. on April 27th, Over 30 tornadoes had already touched down in Alabama, but the skies over Birmingham and Tuscaloosa were disarmingly clear. As the sun rose, it shone bright. The sky was blue, and it appeared as though these storms had passed.
1: But James Spann knew better. He had been at the TV station since just after 5. The first tornado of the day in Alabama had struck at 4.16 a.m., He had sped over to the station immediately, only to be confronted with a new set of problems.
2: The previous two days of storms had wreaked havoc on the forecasting ability of weather services across the South. Radar and radio transmitters were gone, sky cameras had been destroyed, and the cellular towers that had survived were overburdened with emergency calls and survivors trying to reach their loved ones.
1: Then... A report came out of Smithville, Mississippi. A massive tornado had touched down. 17 were dead. The twister had been on the ground for 38 miles, crossing the state line and killing another seven people in Alabama. The peak wind speed had been clocked at over 250 miles an hour. It was an EF-5.
2: Some of the folks that were in the the bank there, they got in the vault, and when the tornado, after the tornado went through, they came out, and the vault was the only thing
0: standing. Nearly the entire town is flattened. The post office, police department, city hall, an industrial site that has several furniture manufacturing facilities. It reminds me, really, of what I saw on the Mississippi coast after Hurricane Katrina. There is debris and not a standing structure far as far as you can see. The Mississippi Highway Patrol says search and rescue missions will last throughout the day. We've seen search teams with cadaver dogs going through rubble. It's just a slow and painstaking process. Basically, Smithville was just, you know, wiped away by that tornado.
1: The staggering details poured in. The Smithville tornado had been hurtling forward at 70 miles an hour. It tore through the town in 10 seconds.
2: A half dozen homes made of brick had been obliterated and the owners taking shelter inside had been killed.
1: An SUV had been lifted and thrown half a mile before it smashed into the Smithville water tower, 130 feet in the air. It left a massive dent in the tower before it was hurled another quarter mile into the town cemetery.
2: The most powerful category of tornado had finally been produced by the superstorm. Then, the twister disappeared back into the clouds and the storm continued rolling east, directly towards Tuscaloosa and Birmingham.
1: The deadliest tornado of the outbreak was still to come. We'll join the inhabitants of Alabama as they attempt to survive the most dangerous 24 hours of the outbreak in our next
2: episode. Thanks for listening to Natural Disasters. You can find all episodes of Natural Disasters and all other Parcast Originals for free on Spotify.
1: Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Natural Disasters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker.
2: To stream Natural Disasters on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Natural Disasters in the search bar.
1: And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time.
2: Natural Disasters was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Natural Disasters was written by Andrew Messer and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas.